Well, David, uh, welcome to Gospel Conversations and uh, and and uh, virtually to uh, the Antipodes. Thank you. Uh, we're going to do three uh, chats around largely Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, and I know that Gregory is uh, one of your favourites, uh, um, one of your favourite theologians, philosophers, ho however you'd like to categorise him. But uh, in the evangelical tradition, which I'm uh, on the edges of, might be the way to describe it, He's certainly not well known, and I think it's a, a rather a, a tragedy that his works are not more widely read. And um, we've uh, our third in our third talk, we will talk about the de facto rivalry uh, between him and Saint Augustine. Uh, but um, for the moment, uh, let's talk about Gregory, and um, I think we could assume our audience, by and large, are not scholars and academics um, and so a bit of an introduction to, to Gregory would be good if you could start off there about the him you know uh, uh, the Cappadocians um, and their influence. Um, yeah the Cappadocian fathers for those who, who don't know the, or at least the principal Cappadocian fathers that is a fairly r remarkable group of men and actually uh, at least one woman uh, who, who came from an area now in Turkey, of course, in Asia Minor, who in many respects are chiefly responsible for, for the triumph of Nicene Orthodoxy and later Christian tradition. Um, Gregory of Nyssa was the, the younger brother of Basil the Great, uh, Basil's dear friend, Gregory of Nazianzus, is another of the, the Cappadocian fathers. Um, uh, as I say, there are other, uh, other uh, figures like Gregory Thaumaturgus who sometimes are uh, placed in their company in, in Cappadocia, but a, a figure of extraordinary significance for Gregory himself was his sister Macrina, his and Basil's sister. Uh, and we'll see, I think in our next conversation you wanted to talk about on the soul and resurrection, uh, which is a sort of Socratic dialogue with his sister uh, that uh, suggests that a great deal of his teaching was influenced by her. She was an ascetic. She didn't write, but uh, what we know of her, we know of through him. He was the youngest of the three great Cappadocians. He's also speculatively the most brilliant. I mean, he, he, uh, they, all three were very impressive thinkers, but Gregory, uh, at, by the end, uh, was the most original, the, the, the most inspired. Uh, the, the one who, in, in a sense... Uh, developed a philosophical and a theological system that didn't really perfectly fit into any of the standard categories of the time. I mean, like everyone at the time, he was something of a Platonist, you know, but, but there, there, there are aspects of his thought that are far more 
uh, original than than anyone else of the time the, can boast. He's remembered as the pillar of orthodoxy. That's one of his titles. And this is curious because uh, he was also a universalist and, in fact, the most thoroughgoing universalist, perhaps, of the whole patristic period. Uh, no one was more openly or more systematically or more relentlessly insistent on universal salvation than Gregory. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, let's go back to that. But, but first of all, I'd like to explore a little bit more um, what you alluded to in his innovative thinking. As you said, he was breaking some boundaries, framing things in new ways. Could you, could you go a little bit deeper on that? Well, I mean, there are any number of ways in which he uh, stands apart from, from his time. Um, He's arguably the first metaphysician who in any significant way uh, explored the metaphysics of divine infinity, for instance. Uh, infinity was ascribed to God by, uh, well, actually very rarely in Platonic tradition. The infinite was not taken to be a positive attribute it, it, uh, uh, for many schools of thought um, until fairly late in the development of, of Hellenistic philosophy. Uh, you know, and he had his own anthropology, had his own approach to an understanding of, of the nature of the human being, the nature of creatures uh, as uh, thoroughly dynamic uh, expressions of being in relation to a God who is infinite. And I, th I don't think anyone before Gregory, for instance, was as successful as he at uh, arguing that the very things that for a more standard metaphysics would be seen as separating humanity from the divine, that is, the mutability, the changeability of, of human nature. Gregory was able to treat as the very terms of union with God, that is, he, he had a very spe specific theology of the way in which human beings are related to God's infinity and union with God, uh, that he, he that was his rather creative use of a, of a, a verse from Paul, uh, you know, of a, 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 a sort of eternal dynamic ascent into the divine, that our union with God, our eternal union with God, would be one also of eternal novelty, of epectasis, of being stretched out into an ever greater uh, embrace that by virtue of the divine infinity is inexhaustible, and by virtue of the uh, uh, inexhaustibly changing nature of the creature, is nonetheless something in which we can participate. You know? yeah. I, I'm getting a bit recherche, but, but just let me say, all of this in its own way is quite original. The, 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 these are new, new ways of approaching the mystery of the human relation to God. I should have pointed out, by the way, when I was talking about the Cappadocians, we should situate them in time. Yes. Right? These are fourth century figures. Gregory was born around 335, we think, and he disappears from the record around 395. So it's a span of about 60 years there. We don't know when he died or how, uh, 
but about 395 is when he sort of disappears from the horizon of the historical record. And this is the most, arguably the most significant moment in doctrinal history for Christianity because this is the period when the great ecumenical councils, the earliest ecumenical councils came into being. And much of the grammar of Christian orthodoxy, much of the regularization of Christian doctrine, uh, much of what we understand now as simple Christian orthodoxy, small o, uh, had its terms defined, uh, rigorously tested, <laughs> argued over at times acrimoniously in that period. So the, the Cappadocians are, are figures in the history of the church than whom there could be none more important. Their, their role in Trinitarian doctrine and the understanding of the incarnation of Christology, the nature of the Holy Spirit, uh, became in a very real way the foundation of all subsequent Christian doctrinal and metaphysical orthodoxy. Yes. Now, of what you've said, I I I want to um, dive into what I would call Gregory's anthropology. Um, you 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 talked about it being very dynamic and animated by its metaphysics, by its sense of its participation in the infinite. And, and I, that's one of the things I find enormously inspiring. It's almost to me pre-romantic. As a matter of fact, this morning I was comparing uh, his chapter on speech with uh, Coleridge's Aeolian harp. Um, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a good comparison. Yeah. 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 So we'll go, go back to that in a moment, but First of all, could you just help us a little bit more on the way that the Cappadocians formulated the doctrine of the Trinity? Um, because, you know, as, as I understand it, it was, uh, I mean, Athanasius uh, made a groundbreaking start, but they, as it were, finished the work. And perhaps you could explain for our listeners why they were so important. I mean, what was up for grabs? If, they, if the Cappadocians hadn't done what they'd done, what would we be left with? You've got to understand that before the conversion of Constantine, uh, there had never been uh, a consensus across the Christian ecumeny on a lot of things. Uh, the Christian life consisted to a great extent in a certain style of existence, in a certain law of corporate charity, and in certain affirmations like Christ is risen, Christ is Lord, Christ is the Son of God, Christ is God in some sense. But in what sense? Because, you know, even there, there were scriptural ambiguities in the first chapter of John, whereas the Father is spoken of as Otheos, the God, which in, in the Greek of the time was the typical formulation for God in the absolute sense. The Logos is spoken of merely as Theos, which could be interpreted as meaning God, but in a derivative sense, was he lessened? And the venerable, and in some ways older, and scripturally every bit as defensible position, especially in the eastern part of the empire and around the intellectual center of Alexandria, you know, the, both the most astonishingly cosmopolitan city of, of late antiquity and the most violent, and, you know, the most contentious. The tradition was to think in various terms what we now call subordinationism, but rather, you know, it, it, made, it, it was a metaphysics that made perfect sense in some way. 
that uh, the father being uh, inaccessibly transcendent enters into relation with lower reality by generating a son or a logos who is a lesser manifestation, literally a defteros theos secondary god. And this is considered perfectly orthodox, understand, that the son was less than the father and the spirit less than the son. The spirit might not even be considered God because he's not called as such, at least not explicitly in scripture. On the other hand, there were figures like Athanasius who argued uh, um, vigorously that the not only the testimony of scripture, but the whole logic of, of salvation required a formulation of co-equality. But at least that was the direction his thought went and that the Cappadocians took up. And the reason for this, if you think about it, is very simple uh, in, in one sense. Um, the understanding of salvation that was universally embraced more or less in the fourth century was that in Christ, God had become present and become human so that humans could be joined to the divine nature directly and become divine. Athanasius has the famous formulation, but he's not the only one uh, who Uh, who says, you know, God became human, that human beings might become God, right? Excuse that that uh, noise. I can't turn it off for some reason. It's okay. Yeah. Um, and if this is so, then the question becomes, in what sense can Christ join us to the Father? Because if Christ is, a, is less than the Father, um, then then in what sense does he actually make God directly present to us and us directly present to God? And there's there's a, a logic here. Only God can join us to God. Only God in the full sense can join us to God in the full sense. How are we joined to the Father? Well, through the Son. And this will, of course, be carried over to later doctrinal uh, disputes and later councils with regard to the Spirit. Well, how are we joined to the Son? Well, in the sacraments, in the life of sanctification, if only God can join us to God, uh, then only the, then the Spirit too must uh, be God. Now, even then, uh, the Cappadocians would be hesitant to use the term "otheos" in the full sense from the Son and the Spirit. Somehow, that would still be an honorific uh, designation peculiar to the Father. Nonetheless, the, they you know they argued more persuasively than anyone else before them with the co-equality of the persons. And this fundamentally altered the way also Christians understood the relationship between creation and God. That is, if God isn't related to creation by a sort of economic reduction of his nature so that he can come into contact with finite reality, then there must be something much more radically, at one hand, on the one hand, transcendent, and on the other, imminent in the way in which God is present to creation. It's not a matter of being part of a chain of causes or uh, you know a continuum of of entities, but rather that God, in His fullness, somehow is well to use the term of Augustine, you know, uh, nearer to me than my inmost parts. Uh, hot, you know, but but superior to my utmost self, you know. Yeah. 
higher than my utmost self. So, so, so what you're saying though, David, I think uh, to make this clear, I mean, re, uh, within the last year at, at our church, we got a, a relatively good sermon on the Nicene Creed and the Council of Nicaea. Um, it, it, uh, but I think it gave people the impression that what today we have with the very, let's say, high view of Christ as co-equal with God, not, not a reduction. That was, everyone believed that. And at the edges, there was a little bit of heresy that needed cleaning up at the Council of Nicaea, and that was quickly done. Um, and everyone always thought what we thought, whereas what you're saying is, no, 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 no. Um, the human mind couldn't really, it was too much of a breakthrough to the human mind to conceptualise that, that a man was God. Yeah. And, and as, as the conversation, the, the, the period of the councils, which begins in the fourth century and stretches on uh, well into the seventh and eighth, uh, well, if you're Catholic, after, after the period of the Counter-Reformation, they include all sorts of later councils too, but the, the, the period in which Christian doctrine was formulated, uh more, I mean, the issue was always the central issue was always the, the sort of inconceivable notion that Christ was both fully God, and 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 not simply in a derivative or honorific sense, but God in the sense that in Him the real presence of the source and end of all existence, you know, the the the, the depth of, of God Himself was present, but also was fully human. And that these weren't two juxtaposed realities, but that he was both at once in one person. Well, this is conceptually difficult, right? And nothing could be more inaccurate than to think that the Nicene Council simply ratified what was the general understanding over against a few aberrant sects that there is quite the contrary. Diversity of views uh, goes back to the time of the New Testament. It's clear. I mean, we, we see there already profound arguments over issues of doctrine, issues of communal life, all sorts of things. And the subordinationist tradition that I've spoken of, at least, I mean, I don't really even know if I like that that term, but that's the standard one, uh, was in many ways less, I mean, it was older than, arguably, than the, than the Nicene settlement and was perfectly respectable and was, in fact, the mainstream opinion and also of many figures that we would consider that the church would call saints in later years. It was not until the issue had to be argued out in terms of what was really at stake. What are we saying? What do we believe about salvation? What are we really, how do we interpret these texts? And the texts, you know, you could go through them verse by verse, especially in the Greek, they can be read in a great diversity of ways. Uh, it, it may seem surprising to us. We point to the first chapter of John and say, well, it says right there, the Logos. You know, in the beginning was, was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, the Logos was God. But what we don't see in English, but that's, you know, uh, uh, incandescently obvious in the Greek, is that, that God there is not, is, is in the, the, the first case we're talking about, Otheos, and in the second case, simply about Theos, which is a very... Which is a which is a word with extraordinary plasticity in the ancient world. All sorts of things were called gods. Saints were called gods. I mean, John of Damascus and other church fathers often speak of the saints as gods. 
Yeah, because they don't they don't mean God in the sense of God Most High. They just mean a divinized uh, creature. Yeah. So the picture of Gregory that now you're painting is um, that uh, whilst ironically uh, he was uh, one of the constructors of what is today known as Orthodox Christianity, smaller Orthodox Christianity. And one of the ironies in behind that is that he was a thorough uh, universalist. Yeah. Uh, let's leave that aside for the moment. But, uh, uh, and, and the implications of the fact that a thorough universalist was the construct of orthodoxy. <laughs> um, but le- leaving that aside, actually, to be fair to him in his context, he was more of an innovator. He was more of somebody who was stretching and lifting the interpretation of what God had done in Christ. Yeah. Oh, very, very much. I mean, this is the interesting thing about it. All the Cappadocians, uh, I mean, they were not simply arguing uh, settled orthodoxy against novel heresies. That's not what they were doing. They, in fact, were the innovators. They were looking for a conceptual language that was adequate to what they believed occurred in Christ, but for which the proper formulations as yet had not had not been agreed upon. Yeah. And so conceptually, uh, now it, in terms, some of this was just like the use of portmanteau terms, like God is one usia in three hypostases. Well, it, we would make a mistake if we thought that these are technical terms of great clarity. They're not meant to be. One substance, three substances or subsistences. But what they did do was lay down uh, demarcations within which the next phase of reflection became possible. Every dogmatic decision, in one sense, would close down any number of avenues of possible speculation, but in so doing would open up immeasurably, uh, immeasurably larger territories of speculation because the speculative grammar always brought with it new mysteries, uh, new complications. It clarified much of the confession of previous generations. Yeah, and... and um... So made it more mysterious. But the thing I want to point out is what's interesting about Gregory is not so much his participation in the, con- the post-conciliar debates. His brother was very engaged in them. Gregory of Nazianzus was... Gregory himself wrote the, the, the long, rather boring treatises against Eunomius, a figure who was, um, you know in the subordinationist camp, as it was called a semi-Aryan, but I mean, these terms are polemical and should be ignored. But he was, Eunomius was a representative, and he was a very talented representative of what was a perfectly legitimate older system of, of Trinitarian thought. It just wasn't adequate to the full range of Christian affirmation and belief in language to the degree that the language of the Cappadocians was. The Cappadocians won in part, or rather their arguments won. The Nicene settlement won in part because of the emperor, but the Cappadocians won the argument in part just because they had better arguments. But Gregory of Nyssa is interesting because it's what he does <laughs> apart from those debates in his own theology, his own system, because you're, you're right. Once you've established this, what, is it, what does it mean to say that Christ, uh, in Christ God has entered into immediate communion with humanity who what is humanity how does one man uh by way you know how is it that 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 god by becoming one man in another sense 
uh, is present in all of humanity, pervades the entirety of human experience and is available to all of the spirit. And this leads to him, uh, you know, Gregory of Nyssa, that is, coming up with all sorts of fascinating claims about what it is to be human, what it is, what, what, what it is to be truly human, how God creates us, how God created humanity from the vantage of eternity as opposed to the process of creation and time and how these two relate. And here he far surpassed his brother and Gregory of Nazianzus in the range of just speculative genius uh, and, and also uh, theological profundity. I mean, you know, it's a, the picture of the human that emerges from it is one of the sort of radical uh, coherence, radical community, rather, you know, that such that the, the human essence itself is, is a community before it's individuated in, in persons. Yes. Now I, I want to go into that, but just before we do, I want to run an idea past you. Um, about Gregory's uh, genius Um, and as you said he's he's a speculative philosophical genius but um, I actually also think he was uh, immensely poetic um, and his enormous command of um, because, because what you're saying, you and I both know that if you actually get to read on the making of man, it's actually relatively simple. But it's it's it, he develops the argument by magnificent analogies, one of which I've just alluded to, the Aeolian harp. And I have this thought that you know it's a, it's also a great work of literature on the making of man, and that he he has uh, he he builds a philosophically um, coherent argument charting unknown territory in, in probably the most profound subject we could, i.e. what is it to be a human being, but he does so, he can do it and create new language because of this, as it were, you know, poetic genius he has. It's, it's, I, I like thinking of it as romantic theology. And, like, so. and, you know, I would point out, uh, among his many accomplishments, um, he is considered one of the fathers of the spiritual, of the mystical tradition, if you will, but the spiritual tradition in two of his treatises, there are more than two in this, in this vein, but the two that, that one should know, I mean, the life of Moses, mm-hmm. which is an exercise on the one hand of late antique exegesis, as, as you probably know, no one was a literalist or a fundamentalist about anything. They're not Jews, not Christians, not pagans. They believed in the spiritual meaning of the text being uh, something that had to be discovered, presented by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in each reading. It might be different from reader to reader, but it was a, it was a spiritual meaning that, that, that was paramount. But what he does with the life of Moses is he, tur- he, 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 he turns this into a treatise, a, a, a mystical treatise about the ascent of the soul into God's infinity. And the other is his great commentary on the Song of Songs, which, uh, you know, is, and, and I should point out that all the Cappadocian fathers were influenced by Origen, who is the real father of the spiritual tradition, who also wrote a, a great commentary on the Song of Songs. But but Gregory's, you're right, has all these uh, odd, uh, you might almost say uh, premonitory, hints of a kind of almost romantic vision of, of the soul as this 
infinite insatiable energy is plunged by its eros for the divine striving not tragically striving not not but uh, but, but nonetheless moved by this um insatiable hunger for the beauty of god into deeper deeper communion and it is it is it is incredibly absorbing to read uh, the, the, both those texts but you see it as you say you're right you see it even and of course we separate dogmatic apologetic mystical uh treatises into different in different categories and one of the reasons why the fullness of gregory's system of thought wasn't fully appreciated at times in previous centuries is that uh or or i mean in uh, i mean recent scholarship let's put it that way is that the full system is is visible only if you read all the different dimensions of his thought and if you treat these as all you know the spiritual treatises the dogmatic the apologetic they're all part of the same picture taking shape and also the exegetical treatises like on the making of the human uh and there the vision that emerges as you say it's romantic it's beautiful it's poetic it's also late antique neoplatonic you know it's all these things at once yes, I, i've thought about the life of moses that it uh, a a comparative text uh against which gregory does a much better job would be bunyan's pilgrim's progress you know um, which was sort of afflicted by a bit of a puritan yeah well i mean we all well i don't know if we enjoy the pilgrim's progress we all at least pretend to at some point in our life uh but it's that's a drearier i mean it, you know it's, it's sort of boring one to one allegories you know pope and pagan gnawing on the bones of christian martyrs i say you know really um, so so, so let's let's go down, but not down. But let's now go to um, on the making of the union, and and critically, critically, if I could just as a segue to that, um, recollect what you've just said, which is once you have a high view of of Christ as co-equal with God, that the the, the nece- that necessarily almost immediately that demands you create a high anthropology. Yeah. And, and, and the landscape against which you're going to understand this has to change. And you've already alluded to that. That By landscape, I mean, um, you know, the, the created order in which we live and who we are. I have long um, uh, felt Hebrews chapter 2 is one of the most significant chapters in the Bible where... I mean, I think one and two are really developing a very, very high anthropology. Um, right. and, uh, as, as you know, um, you and I know because we've read this um, treatise a lot, most people wouldn't. Uh, if, if, if they were going to read a book on the making of humanity, uh, accomplishing the kind of innovations around transcendence, and the presence of the infinite in the finite, they could expect a boring book. But but it's the sheer physicality of the book that's extraordinary where, um, I mean, I, I just wanted to perhaps mention a couple of the chapters and get your thought on them, but I was just reading chapters 9 and 10. You know, I think 9 is on speech. And and having made this epic claim that humanity is is made in the image of God and having developed that, he goes into... I thought an extraordinarily accurate um, description of uh, 
the physicality of the organs of speech. Um, yeah. and, and that whilst he's right down there in the cheek, the tongue, cartilages, perforated bones, you know, he's really, but, but in, in, in that very same text, it's the music of the universe. That's why I compared it to Coleridge's Aeolian harp. That is playing across this text. Could you comment on, um, you know, that that image and 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 that style of Gregory's? Well, <laughs> I'm not sure I can say it better than you you you, you yourself uh, just said it. Um, you know, on the one hand, of, of course, if, for those who don't know, the purpose of the treatise was to conclude a commentary that his brother Basil had left unfinished at the time of his death on the six days of creation, the hexameron. Uh, so this allowed Gregory, to, though, to do things that his brother would not have done. I mean, you know, talking about the create, creation of the human, it would have been... Uh, I'm, I'm not sure Basil would have been nearly as daring either in discussing the physicality or in the speculations on the, the eternal nature of the human. Uh, but I've always thought that this for Gregory is, is, is part of the fascination of the story of creation and of the story of the incarnation is, is that, um, you know, he recognizes the animality the physicality, the, uh, the, uh, the degree to which, especially for fallen humanity in preparation for the fall, Patrick, you know, he talks about you know, preparing certain organs, uh, among them organs of, of, of uh, procreation and all that, to be, to be appropriate to the life we live in this mortal flesh now. Uh, but at the same time, he realizes that, that, that even in this condition, He's always, and you get this feeling in so many of his his other writings, like his sermons on Ecclesiastes, when he when he denounces slavery, is that he recognizes this sort of divine light in this, you know, this divine music in uh, even even in the in the human and and uh, even in his most indigent and and coarsely physical uh, form. Um, I don't know if this is actually what you're getting at when, when you talk about it. Um, but it, it, it does, sorry, I don't know if there's another uh, writer of his time or place who would have been so adept or so dizzying at times in balancing the two. Yeah, you know. yes. I... I um... <laughs> You know, I, I speculate a lot about the curse of the doctrine of sin. I mean, my criticism of a lot of Christianity is that its anthropology seems to start and finish with a declaration that man is that mankind is, is a sinner, and, and that's the diagnostic that is applied, um, which has been a terrible... Um, I often say, you know, that if the church was God's uh, advertising agency, he would have sacked it for destroying the brand. Yeah. Um, and uh, the the, the um, but Gregory doesn't start there. You know, he starts with humanity as the ruler of all, and and then really logically says, well, what capacities would we need? Right, and and in a sense, even starts even starts at the end, 
doesn't he? I mean, he starts the the creation of the human uh, of humanity starts because, of course, he he does this wonderful thing where he takes the two different creation accounts, Genesis one and Genesis two, and and makes them, uh, so to speak, two different creative horizons within God's working. He begins with the human being is already glorified, already united to Christ, already in its totality all human beings together rejoicing in and divinized by the presence of God. And from there, that's the, that's the primordial creative act of God, the eternal already accomplished end. And from there then unfolds, well, even under the conditions of sin, how does God do this? How does God uh, create us in time? This being not just the end of the story, but its foundation, its beginning. And so rather than starting from the sort of uh, tragedy of a promising creature created in a, in a limited landscape of possibilities who makes a mess of things, condemns himself and his descendants, not just to death, but uh, in the Western tradition to an inheritance of guilt and whatever, you know, that's actually this, you know. That's actually um, an interval in the story for Gregory that's surpassed before the story even gets underway. And, and so you're confronted first and foremost with this dizzying claim that humanity, created after the image of God in the beginning, was nothing less than the totality of all human beings throughout time, united in a single body, divinized, joined to Christ, and thoroughly plunged into the into the life of god yeah. uh that's where the story begins it's it's actually it's it's it, it, it you know it's it's actually almost hypnotic in its and then you know arguably there, there's scholars like john barrow in a sense think that the gregory here is actually um working in the same way that origin the real origin not the origin of myth thought as well but certainly we have no other figure uh, who lays it out with such extraordinary uh, beauty and coherence uh, in the early church. Yes, and um, I have alluded in this conversation uh, to, to Coleridge's great poem on the Aeolian harp, which is, I, mean, I won't go into it now, you'd be as familiar with it as, as I well, am. I'm very familiar with <laughs> Coleridge. What, you know what intrigues me, David, about that poem was the end where he gets the metaphorical slap on the wrist from his wife for straying outside the boundaries of tight um, uh, evangelical Christianity. And he sort of apologises for this uh, wonderful uh, sweep he'd been doing on um, the presence of God in and the music of God throughout the creation. Right. Mm. Well, you know, I, I'm a great, I'm a great, uh, I'm a great uh, champion of the romantic uh, movement, and the, especially the English romantic, maybe the German romantic, to the great rebellion against the mechanization of nature. And uh, I, I have no problem mm. uh, with with a full, robust, red-blooded, seemingly panentheistic. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I think, uh, and, and this is another reason to read Gregory on the making of, of humanity and actually Basil on, on in Hexameron, because you realize this is a vision of the world uh, on the part. Now, 
there is a certain degree of the platonic melancholy there, you know, a certain distrust of matter. You just can't get away from that in the fourth century. And, you know, especially in a fallen world, I mean, I think we're aware every time we stub our toe that the material, material condition is not the ideal. <laughs> but uh, they're, not, they're not talking about a world in which dead matter is the fictile clay by which God creates a working order of, of, of mechanisms related to him only in terms of his, uh, his, his power. It is really for him, it's a vision of creation is pervaded by the spirit of God. It really is the pneuma, the breath of God really does permeate, fill and enliven all things. Life is literally at once uh, the eternal spirit of God, but actually the breath of God in you know yeah. uh, in all things, and um, I, I think that uh, you know it's perfectly healthy to see the romantic rebellion against the mechanized picture, the du- either the dualistic or the materialist version of this picture of creation as. Uh, nothing but but a collection of of organic machines uh, and that matter is something inherently dead, which is brought to life simply as a matter of functional arrangement. But that in itself, uh, you know, for, for for Gregory, creation, everything is just the mirror of the divine nature. Uh, and this is i don't know if you if you notice this or not in both basil and gregory they both deny that there's even in any meaningful sense a material substrate mm-hmm. their understanding of matter i don't know if you'd say it's barclay and i think that's a bit of a an anachronism but their understanding uh, of matter is 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 the or the material creation is that it exists as a coalescent of radiant forms of psila noemata, pure pure spiritual forms, and they don't believe that there's any sort of inanimate, non-divine, non-illuminated, that- pure, purely passive level of material existence. They uh, it, it, this is a rather extraordinary, and this this is something he shared with Basil. That's one of the places where Basil was almost as daring as his younger brother. Yeah, that's very interesting, David. In Gospel Conversations, uh, one of our colleagues who's uh, at the moment doing, uh, he's doing a doctorate in Immanuel Kant and quantum mechanics. He's one of the rare people who understands both. But, but essentially, I mean, this is one of the things that struck me about Gregory. He's really foreshadowing quantum mechanics. I mean, the, the world of quantum is exactly what you, you know, the idea that there are, Underneath everything, little bits of stuff that's, you know, and that's the building blocks of matter. We now know that's actually a fallacy. That, uh, right. Well, in, in a sense, in that, in that, if that were all he were doing, of course, you could say he's just falling in the grand tradition of understanding materia prima as pure potentiality. And I think, you know, you, there are real analogies between uh, quantum mechanics and an older Aristotelian Neoplatonic understanding of, of uh, you know, the, 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 you know the atomists were were something altogether different. Those who really thought of the atomic or the 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 the, 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 the corpuscular nature of matter as as a collection of of static bits of matter, you know, inhering in one another. And uh, 
but but you're right. But but also uh, with Gregory and Basil, there's such an emphasis on the noetic or the spiritual nature of of of. I mean, you and I, as physical beings, according to Gregory, are a confluence of of ideal formal truths, right? First, of, in a sense, we're spiritual ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're composed, almost so to speak, of spiritual ideas, and, ma- and, and material existence is, in a sense, a conventional effect of that—a sort of specification, uh, a, a quantification, maybe a localization of that. But it's not an emergent reality from a lower level, a substratum of, of of matter. We come into existence as material beings, only first and foremost as noetic beings. Yes, and uh, uh, my understanding of quantum mechanics is, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a literary guy, I'm not a scientist, but that, uh, uh, as my friend uh, Ron keeps trying to explain to me, that the eerie thing about quantum mechanics is that it actually says almost what you've just said, that it, it appears that physicality arranges itself um, according to our perceptions. Well, especially if there's a real collapse of the wave function, of, and and if as, say, Eugen, Wigner, and others thought that this this collapse is contingent on the observer, mm-hmm. their expectations. Now, there are other theories, you know, like, say, quantum decoherence or, or many worlds or many mind models, none of which, though, answer all the questions they're supposed to answer. But, yeah, the classic picture that comes from the Copenhagen, uh, Copenhagen, uh, um, interpretation of quantum mechanics is that that consciousness is the agency whereby uh, wh- whereby the potentiality wave becomes an actual corpuscular event, you know, and uh, so yeah, but that would have that would have made perfect sense to the minds of. People, you know, Gregory and, person, and others in the tradition uh, who, who didn't think in terms of, uh, of, uh, of an underlying, um, so to speak, coarse-grained material substrate that's only secondarily arranged into living order or into spiritual existence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well... Fascinating, um, I, and I want to uh, keep going on Gregory, but I want to make a couple of points. Uh, ask you to make a couple of points that uh, have occurred to me as we're talking. Number one, you know, for people who would think, "Oh, how does this fit in with you know biblical theology?" Um, and number two, how practical is this? My two points are this: uh, as to how practical it is, and I'd like your comment on it. I think it's obvious. Um, it surely is no coincidence that this man who had such a profound view of the dignity, the potentiality, the, the potential divinity of humanity was uh, the pioneer of the advocacy that slavery could not be, uh, uh, could not be fitted in with, with the Christian mind. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know if it, we always appreciate just how extraordinary this is um, because the entire ancient world, east, west, north, south, accepted bonded servitude. Um, now, uh, 
I mean, it's just it's it was a, such a basic institution that even those who disliked it, many of the church fathers disliked it and wanted Christians to live on fraternal terms, so to speak, with their slaves. Uh, nonetheless, would never have imagined that the institution itself uh, could be renounced. I mean, it was just Gregory of Nyssa is literally the first person we have any evidence of. The Western tradition, but actually, I would say, in all of human history, to undertake, as he does in that one Ecclesiastes sermon that obviously you've read, an assault on the very notion of slavery, the very institution, all the premises underlying it is, as being inherently unjust, inherently contrary to to Christian faith in, in in. there's a lot of radical language in the church fathers. Most people would be quite surprised. Even in the fourth century, you have, there are figures who are denouncing the wealth of the wealthy, you know, and, and, uh, and speaking in no uncertain terms of, of the judgment that would fall on those who by keeping wealth to themselves and denying it to the poor were, were, uh, in a sense, murdering the poor. But no one ever went as far as Gregory <laughs> in actually suggesting that what was it, you know, that it was actually possible to imagine that the institution that for many was the foundation of a functional society, bonded servitude, could be rejected by Christians. The, the, you know, the, 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 this was um, now, it doesn't give you a practical uh, a, a, a practical politics. He wasn't a political theorist. There was no such thing for the most part. Even Plato, you wouldn't say uh, the Republic isn't. A, he wasn't a political theorist in the way later political theory developed. But, and what he's trying to do there, of course, is is the sermons on Ecclesiastes were given during Great Lent. Under Constantine, it had become legal to emancipate slaves in the church, manumitio in, in Ecclesia. You could just go and the bishop had the power because you couldn't just manumit slaves without uh, uh, without legal warrant and without a, a legal certificate recognition and a manumission fee. But under Constantine, Constantine, as part of the amelioration of law in a Christian direction, and this would become possible, Gregory is encouraging. I mean, he's challenging everyone in his in his congregation if they really if they are really if they really believe uh, that that Christ is the Savior and, in fact, the one who will divinize every human soul. They should all be setting their their, their slaves free. And it's just it's uh, you're right. I mean it's it's so it's so far outside of the mainstream of what anyone even would imagine to have been possible in the fourth century that that in itself, if that's all we knew about Gregory, would make him one of the most extraordinary intellectual figures of late antiquity. Yeah, and the other thing, uh, as I read Gregory, that I because he's as you know. Um, on the making of humanity begins in uh, speculatively in the councils of the Godhead um, discussing uh, this, this plan. And that strikes me as where um, 
Paul, I'm assuming it's Paul, goes in Ephesians 1, you know, prior to the foundation of the world. Right. Really yes. going back to the same place Gregory went. Right, right. I mean, you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Uh, and Gregory certainly has that in mind. In, in, because, because the way the, the treat for those of your listeners who haven't read it, what Gregory does with the first creation account of Genesis is to say that in that, in the making of, what, what does it mean to say, uh, to, to make humanity in the divine image? Uh, the first creation is the ideal creation in the counsels of God, which is also the eternal reality of, of the perfected creation of the entirety of humankind in perfect union, because only in perfect union, one with another, every single person throughout human history, joined to one another in the bond of love, joined to Christ as the head of the body and by the spirit being drawn ever eternally into greater union with God. Only that is a humanity that's the true image of God because uh, perfect in form, perfect in love, uh, no alienation between humankind and, the, and its divine model, you know, a, a, a humanity that truly reflects its archetype. Then the second creation account become, is allegorized but not, or, or, or so interpreted as dealing with the historical unfolding under the conditions of fallenness and death. This is, this is given that, that a fall... And Gregory's not necessarily, he's not a literalist necessarily. How this fall happens is, you know, he obviously takes for granted is allegorized as the story of Eden. Under those circumstances, how the fullness of the pleroma, he's in the fullness of, of the human, that alone can be, and, and this is a radical statement, only the true image of God can be saved. So it's, it's uh, either everyone or no one for Gregory, you know, the, the premise. Of, now, in the next treatise that you want to talk about next time, how this works out eschatologically is done. But here, although it's interesting, this is a treatise on creation, yet it begins with an eschatological vision. Uh, and, and, Whereas on the soul and resurrection is about eschatology, but it ends with the, with the first creation, you know. So it's a... Yes, and I'd like your comment on something else I've uh, thought about quite a lot. Um, I mean, I think... But, but let me just say one last thing. That, that Remember that are unfolding. Akaluthia, this is actually a, a principle in Gregory's thought, that there is that that there's an evolution of the human, in a sense. Not, obviously... Although, actually, he did believe that if you say in the making of man, you see, he also says that uh, God doesn't... God created by creating potentialities in nature and then allowing them to develop according to their own powers into the full reality. You know, he's, um, but akalithia also means the development whereby the totality of humanity through the providence of God only comes into being successively in time, but then is successively both in this age and in the age to come before that, which is beyond all ages, uh, perfected until it arrives at that which was its first beginning. Uh, it's Greek, what, 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 Greek word you, you kept using? I, I, didn't, I don't know Greek. Yeah. Akaluthia. 
uh, well, like it, like uh, uh, an acolyte, one who followed, you know. Is a, yeah. And that's the word Gregory uses. Uh, where in, in explaining, and that's just a term he uses for the unfolding uh, in the second creation account and elsewhere for the unfolding of God's design. Uh, and the progressive uh, movement from the first seeds he speaks of of creation to its ultimate consummation in the transfiguration of all creatures. And this is a radically different view of, I think we, we naively tend to have a view of creation. It was like a perfect one-stop shop, don't mess it up. Whereas his view is more of an evo- uh, of a potentiality and unfolding. Right, and this this will be picked up quite brilliantly after his time by the great Maximus the Confessor. You could argue that for Maximus and for Gregory, creation has not yet happened from our perspective. Creation is that which is, uh, in eternity has happened. Uh, but the real world, the world that God intends, the real humanity that God intends and creates in the beginning in his eternal counsels is yet to come into being. Yes. We, we are, this world is the foreshadowing of creation. And this uh, leads another point I'd like your comment on. I've long thought that the Christian mind has got hijacked by this anthropology of sin and haven't yeah. talked much about that word anyway. So that the big problem is um, we're created perfect. The gap is between you know, holiness and, and, and sin, whereas... That is acknowledged by Gregory, but I think, the, the, as it were, the, the bigger gap is this paradox of created, uncreated, uh, this, this infinite, finite, and in a yeah. way, that is what he's exploring in On the Making of Humanity. How, how can finite, corporeal, bodily, actually incorporate the infinite? Right. And again, as I said, part of that, part of his ingenious solution to this, again, picked up by Maximus later, is that the very restlessness and mutability and dynamism that in one sense distinguishes the finite, the finite creature as being a synthesis, always become never entirely itself in this world. I mean, each of us, you know, one moment we're a child and another moment a young, a young man or woman and another moment, we're never fully who and what we are in this world. Uh, but in another, but what we're ultimately called to become is God. I mean, you know, they, he's quite radical. You know, we're called to, to, to be divinized. Uh, it's the very dynamism of change, which in one sense is the ontological gulf between the simple, finite, transcendent God and the composite, uh, sorry, finite, the, the simple, infinite, uh, transcendent God and the, and the f- composite, finite uh, creature becomes also the term of union because we're, we're all, you know, we can, we can establish a kind of stability and change in which we're ever changing for the better and for the more, you know, become like a, he speaks of it as, you know, as if the fountain of the divine nature is pouring into a vessel, we're a vessel and the vessel is expanding infinitely rather than being overwhelmed because that, that very dynamism, that kinesis, that 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 is uh, logically and ontologically what distinguishes us from the divine becomes practically uh, uh, and uh, spiritually what you what allows us to become ever more deeply united to the divine in and by the spirit. Well, that you know speaks to a 
uh, one of the paradoxes, uh, uh, challenging paradoxes of the human condition as we get older, of course, is change. And I've, I often have thought, I've seen in my friends, the melancholy of change. I mean, when kids are young, it's great to have the sixth birthday after the fifth birthday. My next birthday, I'm 70. Uh, like, is this a celebration or is this uh, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the twilight? And, um, and so there's this irony of change, but uh, to which every human being, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's rather poignant. But this gospel, this gospel speaks to that. Um, that reframes it as actually growth. As Paul said, yes, the outer man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, there's a great poignancy. In I mean, Gregory's aware of the melancholy of change and of loss. Uh, he was married, by the way, I should point out, um, uh, unlike... Uh, you know, I, I don't believe you know his brother was ever married. You know, so, uh, but but we have evidence, or at least it seems to be the case that Gregory was married. But but he wrote a treatise on virginity, uh, and it seems to be the case that he was widowed. And there's some very beautiful lines. I mean, he actually recommends the unmarried life for those who are too weak for the married life. It's not. He doesn't treat uh, the unmarried life as necessarily the more heroic or the stronger, but for those who are pursuing the ascetic life, part it's because he thinks some people aren't strong enough for the married life and spiritual burden of the married life. But he mentions, you know, the, there are these very moving lines about when you embrace someone you love, you're embracing someone that you will mourn or who will mourn you. So there's something tragic in the condition of change in this life, he understands, which, you know, which makes it all the more moving when in, especially in, say, the life of Moses or the Song of Songs, that, that, that very, you know, the ephemerality, the transience of things, the change, is sort of uh, becomes the unexpected doorway into a condition of eternal union eternal love uh and and this endless i don't know how to say odyssey this endless adventure of ever greater ascent into the divine mystery into the depths of the divine nature you know um uh and, and as i say this this is picked up later in the tradition by maximus the confessor with uh, who's not a moving writer like Gregory. Maximus is one of the severest dialecticians and one of the most, he writes some of the most god-awful, unreadable Greek, not because it's bad Greek, but because it is willfully condensed, inspissated, impenetrable, and complex. In Gregory, you get the full poetry of the vision, and Maximus, not so much so, but even so. Uh, those are the two, more than anyone else, who... who, who uh, creatively engaged the way in which change is at once the tragedy and the liberation from tragedy in our nature. Perhaps we could uh, later on talk about Maximus, not now though. Um, I'd like to, this has been a fascinating conversation and um, I would like to conclude it by uh, uh, asking you to comment on specifically 
on chapter 10, which is the city of the mind chapter, this magnificent picture he has of synthesis, you know, that in the mind, uh, he views the mind as a marketplace. And I think his major point that he's wanting to make is the synthetic quality of the mind and uh, which, uh, which I, you and I could, I mean, it's, it's terribly interesting. Obviously it foreshadows recapitulation in Ephesians 1.10, the mind of Christ. From my point of view, uh, having, you know, working in the world of innovation and strategy, um, the Cartesian model is a model of analytics, splitting things up. What no one can right. get is synthesis, which is magic, which is mystical, um, which is, as I, I tell my clients, uh, the closer you get to synthesis, the closer you get to God. Uh, you, I just think it's the most glorious chapter. And I know that you um, uh, have studied and are about to put out a book, I hope, soon on the soul and the mind and the the aspects of thinking that are simply uh, non-reductive to any kind of mechanism um, of which I have synthesis is one. So just a final comment on his magnificent vision of uh, the mind at work as... Uh, well, I mean, I, I, t I take it as... It's also... That's the chapter that has that phrase, the music of reason, uh, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, we're, we're sort of built as this instrument through which uh, the music of reason plays. But yeah, the, the image of the mind uh, as, as, as a great city with many entrances through the senses, through the apprehensions, and, and uh, that, um, you know, he speaks of a great city in which people come from all directions. And when they enter the city, they go to all different places. Some are like going to the market. Some are going to the churches, right? Uh, I find it. I mean, it, it, it's it, it, it's it's a it's fascinating, and in many ways, uh, wonderful picture of 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 human spiritual existence as a kind of uh, how do I put it? Not in the Cartesian sense. Uh, closed in in the way that a, a single uh, monadic kind of intelligence that operates through the senses inhabits an alien, almost alien, or at least extrinsic mechanism called the body and uses it to function uh, according to certain radical, uh, certain sort of practical employments. But but just the opposite, that the body itself is 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 uh you, you know, the body and mind are together the great city that is open to all things and that reason uh and the human intellect are a place where where uh all of reality freely enters and congregates intermixes you know i don't know what comment to make on it except that that again uh, it, 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 it's an ennobling picture, but it's also a picture that suggests that, that both spiritually and physically at once, or by the, by, by the medium of the body, we're actually in direct and immediate communion with the reality beyond us. You know, in, um, in modern philosophy, to a very great degree, uh, since we were talking, since you mentioned my book on the mind, uh, the dominant theory for a long, and I would say still the dominant theory, 
of knowledge is that we know the world by representation. That is, that, that our senses acquire a certain number of data from the world around us, but then, then internally we create a representation in our own sort of internal theater. And that the only world we really know is the one inside our skull. Well, Gregory is, is in a sense speaking of a very different vision in which we actually are open to the whole of reality. Each of our senses is yet another way in which, in which the real order of being makes its way into us and we're open to it. And we're sort of a nested city within the greater city of the whole humanity within the, you know, the, 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 the full communion of all created nature in, in God. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's, and, uh, it's a vision that, that seizes you by its beauty, but I mean, don't overlook the, the very, uh, the very real sense in which it's saying something radically different than what the modern prejudice tells us. We're not isolated intellects closed up within uh, you know, sealed up within walking corpses, uh, projecting the outer world on an internal cinema, you know, this internal cinema screen, and uh, and knowing only the world that's available to us through our own representation of the world to ourselves, and are removed from reality. Instead, we're actually in real communion with the spirit of God in all things manifesting itself in the life of the whole, like the wind of the you're passing through the Aeolian harp, you know. So, yeah, I share with you a, a great admiration for that image and that, that chapter. Yes, and there's no need to go there now, but it's obvious um, adjacency to universal salvation will be clear. <laughs> Oneness uh, in all things. Right, well, I, I think that'll become increasingly clear, especially if we talk about on the soul and resurrection. But the, the universalist substance of this treatise lies right there at the beginning, the understanding that there is no humanity, there is no human being in the image of God. There cannot be, except in the full union of all, all human souls in their shared union with the first good, as he puts it. So, uh, David, um, thank you very much. It's uh, been a wonderful conversation. Um, I've enjoyed it. I hope you have. I hope our listeners too. It's been a great day in general. I, this is the end of the day for me, the beginning of the day for you. But I'll tell you this. I don't, I don't suppose you follow baseball. But my team, the Orioles today, the pitcher pitched a, a no-hitter, a complete game no-hitter, which is the first time my team has had such a – since the great Jim Palmer in 1969. So I'm in a state of jubilation because uh, if there were no other religion available, salvation, I think I believe baseball would still be a way to go. He'll do it, yes. Yeah, well, for me, it's golf, but um, – uh, oh. Well, then you are going to hell. I, this is, so, no. I, don't, I don't go to hell uh, because golf, uh, golf afflicts a, a misery on you. But yeah. anyway, um, as you're talking, uh, just a couple of little um, 
peremptory points. Your book on the soul and the mind, uh, when is that coming out and what would it be called? Or don't you know what it's going to be called? Uh, I, I can't, I can't release it. I mean, I'm, I'm writing, I, I've, during the shutdown, I wrote uh, seven books. Uh, <laughs> there was a 600 page novel. There was a 400 page book that just came out called Roland and Moonlight. There are two theological dreams. But all, during that whole time, I've been putting together the book on the way. This, it's, I, I'm trying to decide in the final form how, how, sh, how much I can trim it down to as clear and incisive a statement as I can make it because I'm tired of reading gigantic tomes on yeah. philosophy of mind that, that, that mostly just keep reciting the same arguments without offering solutions. Uh, what I think will be the case will be that I'll be handing in the manuscript in about six or seven months, and it'll appear within the year after that. So it's still probably a year and a half away. Yeah, yeah. What it's going to be called, I don't know, but if, if you'd like to name it for me, I'd be grateful. Uh, right okay. now it's just called Mind. Mind, okay. And uh, uh, God. Uh, is it Mind what, sorry? Mind, comma, God. Oh, that's how that's how it looks on that that's the file on my computer okay um we should make the obvious point to our listeners uh that and, and this will become clear when we talk about augustine augustine was prolix uh gregory of nyssa was succinct his works are like all poetry condensed yes and no i mean his early work the the, the contra eunomium treatises there he's a young man he's tr- doing the dutiful work that was required of him in part by basil to refute the enemies of the Nicene settlement, and that can be kind of exhausting. But when he was writing in his own voice, you're right, he uh, um, he could say a great deal in a very short space. Well, I mean, Augustine could too. It's just a, a, Augustine kept going on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you're right. In this this treatise on the making, I, th- I think, um, well, I didn't even pick it up. You can read it in under an hour. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, as we're talking, I, I was thinking, uh, I had to give you an idea for another book, but um, I'm recently reading a book. It, it's a popularised version of A Great Truth, How the Scots Invented the Modern World on the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, and uh, I'm thinking, you know, there's a book out there, you know, How Gregory Invented Christianity or something like that. Um, uh, yet to be written to... to... Uh, yeah, that, that would... Um... Well, it might get me in a certain in a certain degree of trouble, but uh, yeah, I, I, I can see. Well, uh, all right. And by the way, these issues of mind and consciousness. I mentioned the book that just came out called Roland and Moonlight. That's actually the much of what will show up in a more rigorous form. Okay. In the consciousness book is dealt with there. In what I like to think is a is a very uh, fetching way. I'll, uh, we'll um, hope to the get... joke fetching will be obvious to you when you know what the theme of the book is. Okay, all right. Well, I hope that um, we get you a few, a few more um, readers and buyers of that book, David. And, uh, yeah. Oh, well, that's always welcome too, yeah. I, I say to everyone, buy 10 copies. Christmas is coming. Okay. You'll want to give it to us. So, so. Okay, good. And I've got that to pay, yeah. Thank you for your time. Um, and thanks thank you. For, I enjoyed it. Yeah, so have I. And thank you for your life and, uh, and the way you think and share. It's a blessing to many people. Um, well, thank you. Okay. Even if you do love golf. 
<laughs> okay. Take care. Bye. Bye.